All right, thank you for the applause. Uh, I guess that's all I needed. We can finish it. We are done. Amen. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark, for the introduction and particularly for your friendship and encouragement, me personally and uh, Taylor uh, as well, in terms of what we are trying to do in helping people uh, journey with Jesus as a discipleship journey. That's really what Taylor's focused upon. How can you deepen as a disciple of Jesus Christ? So uh, let, we want to focus in upon the passage that uh, Mark has highlighted for us. And uh, to do that, um, let me just briefly pray. Father, thank you for what Mark has prayed, that um, we would truly uh, live into who we already are in Christ. And as we journey with Jesus and reflect upon uh, a passage he potentially did address with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, would you, by your grace, not only give us intellectual insight, but more importantly, transform our hearts and motivate us to be the presence of Christ in all that we do and say, particularly as this semester unfolds here on campus and with whoever we may be meeting as you intersect our lives with opportunities to uh, embody you, Lord Jesus, in practical, effective ways as your disciples journeying with you. In Jesus, your name, amen. Well, as Mark mentioned, my wife and I are here uh, in Three Hills, and she is not here uh, because we're continuing on to Medicine Hat after this, and her father right now is quite ill, so she did not want to potentially compromise her ability to visit him in the hospital. Um, so she sends her regrets, but uh, we are privileged to have this time. So last night, my wife and I went for a, a little trundle. We went and walked around Three Hills, I've never been downtown. It was, a, it was kind of fun, a real neat experience. Uh, but then we ended up in Anderson Park. So has anybody ever been in Anderson Park? All right, well then you don't have to know that you have to be careful when you go for a walk in Anderson Park. No, not because you have the water features and them goldfishers can jump out and attack you. Not because of the slippery sidewalks right now. I guess the goldfish are frozen. They're not even in there right now. Um, but you need to be careful when you go for a walk, especially with a person of the opposite sex. Because you know what? My wife and I, it was such a romantic evening with the beautiful lights and everything, we almost kissed. <laughs> that would have been a neat experience. When you get old, you know, no, just kidding. <laughs> but you never know what might happen when you go for a walk. And the two disciples on the road to Emmaus never had any idea what was coming their way because uh, they didn't know who they were walking with until Jesus broke bread after they arrived in Emmaus and, and they said, oh, no wonder our hearts were burning within us. Something, no, no, someone was here that was more than just human. And Jesus is here in our midst and we, as the body of Christ, want to invite him and embody him in all that we do and say. And when you go for this walk, as Kathy and I did, you might end up with a romance if it's with somebody of the opposite sex. You might end up in a, a new covenant that you make with this person, a marriage covenant. And we're going to explore Jeremiah 33 in that context of a marriage covenant, the new covenant as marriage covenant. And hopefully that gives you a different angle from which to celebrate the joy we have in fellowshipping, fellowshipping with the Father 
through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the message today, um, I'm calling Emmaus Imaginings, Jesus and Jeremiah's New Covenant. What would have happened if Jesus was talking on the road to Emmaus about Jeremiah 31 verses uh, 31 to 34, particularly as Mark read out for us? And here in Luke 24, we see that particular passage as the focal point of the conversations in chapel is beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. One of the beautiful ways to read the scriptures, i.e. the Old Testament, that's what that's talked about, the scriptures there means Old Testament in that context, is to read them Christocentrically, seeing Jesus as the center point of the Old Testament. And if you read with an ear and an eye to discovering Jesus in the Old Testament, a beautiful, powerful journey. And that's what the followers of Jesus, Christ, now we know that Jesus' last name is not Christ, right? It's not like Ralph Corner. Yo, Jesus Christ, uh, do you want to sign your name here? And he, No. What does Christ mean, anybody? Messiah, okay? And why do we say Christ? Why don't we say Jesus, Messiah? Okay, Christ is a Greek, so Christos is a Greek word um, that translates Mashiach in Hebrew into Greek, Christos, and English just went, ah, the OS, we don't need it, we'll just go Christ. So Jesus, when you say Jesus Christ, always think Jesus the Christ. Okay, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And this is a powerful center point for our passage today. Jesus the Christ explaining how he is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament and anticipated for hundreds of years. So let's read the particular passage that we have uh, in front of us here. So uh, Jeremiah 31, and this is one of the prophets that Jesus most likely would have referenced on the road to Emmaus. So the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Verse, don't hit the laser hit the clicker. So Jesus is talking, I mean, Jeremiah is talking here about two covenants. He's talking about the covenant that God previously made with the people of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt, took them through the desert, established the Mosaic covenant on Mount Sinai, created, you might say, the the ethics of the kingdom of God as it was embodied in the people of Israel. So they would know how do we live as a people set apart 
for service and for witness of our heavenly Father, the Mosaic Covenant. What's interesting here is that Jeremiah talks about this covenant and defines two entities as the ones who sit under this covenant of the Father. The days are coming, declares the Lord, where I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, you Old Testament scholars, you. What's weird about this? What strikes you as being odd in that statement? I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. House of Israel. When was this being written? When's Jeremiah writing? Well, what time frame? What's the historical background? Anybody know? You thought, you thought you're supposed to just listen to me, right? And you're going, just let me just go blank and stare. I don't want to talk. So we know that Jeremiah is writing to the time when Babylon has come. They've attacked Judah. They're now going to uh, attack Jerusalem, take Jerusalem. 597, 11 years later, they're gonna, the uh, Jews are going to rebel. 586, finally, the ultimate destruction of the temple is effected. Right? Where's Israel? We know Judah is the nation around when Babylon's attacking. Where's Israel at that time? They're gone. They are poof, disappeared. Right? So there's something weird about what, what do you mean? You're going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel? They don't exist anymore. The ten tribes have become extinct. So since 722, 721 BCE, Israel's bloodline no longer was purely Jewish because they were now ethnically mixed. When Assyria conquered Israel, the ten tribes of, of uh, the people of God, called Israel as a nation, political entity called Israel, and now you have Judah and Benjamin as the other two tribes in the south, when Assyria took the ten tribes over, their policy was they, pulled, they allowed intermingling of marriages. They would take the exiles to other lands. They would bring other people into their land. They'd allow them to intermarry. So you lose your ethnic bloodline. So the people of Israel no longer existed, and they basically existed in the form in Jesus' day as... Samaritans. So Samaritans were a mixed race. And that's why Jews in Jesus' day went, ah, anathema, we don't talk to Samaritans, we don't touch Samaritans, we don't even walk through their region. When Jesus wanted to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee, Samaria's right in the center. The straight route would be go through Samaria. Jews would go across the Jordan River walk on the other side of the Jordan with Samaria on this side. Once Samaria ends, they'd go across the Jordan River and get to Galilee. They would never intermingle with Samaritans. But Jesus had different things in mind because he went into Samaria, right? John 4, the Samaritan woman. He was one who's bringing all people into the fold. This promise of Jeremiah, I'll make a covenant with the house of Israel. Samaritans were the modern-day representatives in Jesus' day of that. And we see the house of Israel 
coming into that new covenantal relationship through Jesus Christ, that beginning. But it goes broader and beyond that point. But before we get there, this is the, some pictures here of the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. Okay, now this guy at the top there, with a fancy, cool beard, I mean, wouldn't that go over well these days? You guys like his big beards, like, do that kind of fancy nodding? Oh, chic. Go right back to the 700s. So this guy on the right, his name, and, and get ready to say this, this is a tongue teaser for the morning, Tiglath Pileser III. Isn't that the best name in the world? When I was saying Old Testament at Bible college, I love that guy. Tiglath Pileser III. Okay, let's all say it together. Tiglath Pileser III. And got to say it three times because he's the third. Tiglath Pileser III. Tiglath Pileser III. And he had a buddy called Shalmaneser V. The two of them uh, finished off the first round of taking over the ten tribes. 20 years later in 701, then you had two more Assyrians in consecutive orders, Sargon the second, and Sennacherib, who finished off the job. Never quite took Jerusalem. And it took another 130 years uh, until that job was done by the Babylonians. So Sargon, hey, isn't that Lord of the Rings? Sargon? Okay, who's shaking their head saying yes, because I'm going to embarrass you? That was my first reaction. I went, wait a second, that's no, not quite. What's the name of the, the really bad dude in Mordor? Sauron. Okay, close enough. It you know, worked for this a little bit. So um, the old covenant with the house of Israel. What's, how's that going to happen? There's also the old covenant with the house of Judah that has become new, a new covenant with the house of Judah. Judah was the place where Jesus' last name first started. Messiah, Christos. Because out of the tribe of Judah would come the Messiah. So who are some people that were famous that came from the tribe of Judah in the Old Testament? David. David. Okay, don't need to go any further than that. David, yes. Because the promise in the Old Testament was that the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, would, the Anointed One, literally is what that means, would come through the bloodline of David. He would be a royal Davidic Messiah. And that is, from the tribe of Judah, would this new covenant be embodied in a person called the Messiah, who, in the first century, was incarnated as Jesus, son of Mary, son of Joseph. The royal Davidic Messiah. And we see Jesus pictured that way, that Judah connection made very explicit in the book of Revelation. Because in chapter 5 of Revelation, you see this picture in 4 of God on the throne. And then John is told, look, the line of the tribe of Judah. Which is a way of identifying Jesus. And he says, he turned and he looked and he saw not a lion, but a lamb. Because the first time Jesus, the Messiah, comes is as Savior, sacrifice, as Mark highlighted, the Passover, the blood. He was the Passover lamb sacrificed for our sin. The second time he comes is a lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to just clear the deck and reestablish, not even reestablish, 
um, transform all of creation for eternity. So we have this new covenant for both houses of the Jews. The house of Judah, we identified. And like we talked about in Judah, in 597 to 586, uh, their bloodline was exiled to Babylon. And the Jews of that day did not intermarry. They remained separate culturally and ethnically. They were very careful to maintain the integrity of their bloodline. And then they returned to the land um, during the time of the Persian Empire and rebuilt the temple. And then the story continues. So Jesus was a Judean. And here we have some cool pictures. So the guy at the top left, again, awesome beards. I don't know if I like the hat kind of thing, but, you know, I can work with a beard. Uh, this guy is one of the most famous Babylonian kings. Do you know his name? Nebuchadnezzar, all right. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. And if you really want to read up on him, read Daniel chapters 1 to 6, because uh, a lot of that's set within the time frame of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, interestingly, there is this comment just a few verses before Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, in verse 21, where God the Father calls the people of Israel and Judah. He says, return virgin Israel. How long will you wander unfaithful daughter of Israel? So he's going to establish a new covenant with them that invites them to return, but not on the basis of law and duty and on the basis because they have a father who's an authority over them and they're his children thus must obey or have the privilege of obeying, but a new covenant that's going to invite them to come not necessarily as a daughter, but as a bride, to come out of a commitment of love. But here, the Lord's identifying virgin Israel. How long will you wander, daughter Israel? Well, virgin in the ancient Near East did not necessarily mean somebody who is sexually pure, i.e. has never had sex. Virgin, the A.N.E. first and foremost, meant that it was a young woman of marriageable age who was under authority of a father. That's a primary connotation. The sexual purity is, a, is an implied piece because she's still under the authority of the father, thus the, normally she is um, a virgin sexually. But the word virgin in its ancient Near Eastern use has added its primary um, application. And we even see that in this, past, in this verse because there the Lord says, how long will you wander unfaithful, daughter of Israel? He just calls her virgin, the previous verse now says you're unfaithful. You can't be unfaithful unless you've had sex. <laughs> so she's not a virgin, technically, even in this passage, but she is because she's under authority of the Father and a young woman of marriageable age saying, you've made a terrible mistake. You've broken the covenant, but there is a rest restoration, and it's not going to come through the Mosaic covenant. It's coming through the royal Davidic Messiah. A new covenant. A new covenant is coming. And this new covenant is not, verse 32, like the Mosaic covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them up by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on national privilege. It's not based 
on the covenant, which comprised the universal Ten Commandments, and the culturally particularized other commandments. What kind of foods do we eat? What kind of festivals, like Sukkot, as Mark talked about last week? That's not what's going to determine and define this new relationship that God is developing uh, with Israel and Judah, and as Jesus identifies, beyond those who would have any Jewish connections whatsoever to all non-Jews, which means us here in this world. And this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put their law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So this new covenant is somehow different. And we can read a bit into here, but Jesus is probably talking to these disciples of Emmaus and he's explaining the implications of how he brings in this new covenant where now there's this opportunity to know about God's character through a person, Jesus, not just through text and commandments, but it's not just knowing about, it's knowing. And if you know what the word know means in the Old Testament, what also does it mean? If you know a person, there's, yeah, I know them. Hey, we are good. We can hang out. I know all about them. Amen. What else can it connotate? It's X. Oh, that three-letter word we don't want to say. Yes. No. Adam knew his wife Eve. And look at that. Something popped out. No. So there's this sense of knowing is a very deep, intimate knowledge. And that's what's the privilege. Because in the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, only one person, one time a year could go into the very presence of God and experience God in his fullness to the degree that God desired to reveal himself. And that was the high priest when he went into the temple on the Day of Atonement, bringing blood, entering the Holy of Holies, But now that knowing that the presence of God pervading and invading your life and living out through you through Jesus Christ is available to every single person, Jeremiah is prophesizing. And Jesus is talking to the disciples saying, that's me. That's what happens in a relationship with me. And when he broke bread, suddenly their hearts were burning and they knew experientially not just intellectually who this person was. That's the knowing that we have the privilege of um, as God's new covenant people. And, oh, sorry, I forgot to say. So this new covenant is not mosaic rules, it's marriage rules, okay? It's a marriage relationship, and it rules over rules. Right? It's this intimacy. That's the walk. That's the new covenant. And I'd like us to think about, as we conclude, this new covenant as marriage. That might help you get your head around, how do I relate to Jesus? What does that really mean, being in the new covenant? Think about being married to him. How would you 
work with a spouse, that's how you work with Jesus. And that's uh, the beauty of knowing Jesus because he reveals everything about himself because you're in a marriage relationship. And so this, this marriage relationship um, is talked about in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 23. I'm just going to read out uh, one portion of that. And Paul's talking here about marriage. Why should a man and a woman marry? And he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But he says this is not just talking about a physical privilege of human beings. This is a profound mystery because he says it's an, it's an example. It's, it's an embodied example of what our relationship with Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit is to be like. He said this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The church. We are the wife Jesus is our husband. And marriages should embody that relationship. Human marriage is there to display to the world what a relationship with Jesus should look like. Unfortunately, our marriages aren't always doing that. And I can attest to that myself. (laughs) But that's the goal and that's the priority. So we are the bride of Christ. That's the new covenant being made, the new privilege we have, intimate fellowship with Jesus in everything we do and say. And this intimacy that we have is available for the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Judah, the Jews, who've been, God's worked with faithfully that Jesus ministered among, but also those outside that pure bloodline. The Samaritans, Jesus demonstrated that. But also outside that, Gentiles, a Syrophoenician woman. He broke all the boundaries, all the cultural norms for the sake of letting the kingdom break into people's lives and transform and change not just them individually, not just their social relationships, but society in general. I'm so encouraged you're doing that day of prayer and seeking to impact society outside this campus in very practical ways. That's awesome. That's how we have to keep on thinking. When you're married, you don't just yell in your house going, wow, she's awesome. Oh, let me tell you. And the walls are going, yeah, we heard it before. You know, you go outside and you yell, man, I am so privileged to be married to my wife. Oh, Lord, you are so gracious, so good. Yeah, you can't say, you know, yeah, you can't say, uh, yeah, you should get to know my wife. (laughs) But you should not get, the wife is saying, you should get to know my husband, Jesus. That's what we're doing. You should get to know this Jesus because he is everything. And I'm just going to finish with a picture of us as the church that perhaps you've never thought about, but which emphasizes again what Mark talked about last week. Not only are we to tabernacle with God, be in his presence, make that our priority, but we are to be the tabernacle of God. We are to be the embodied presence of the God of this universe in our individual bodies, our bodies the body of the Holy Spirit, temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. But we together as the body of Christ, locally and universally, are not are a tabernacle. We're actually a temple. Did you know that? The Bible pictures us. Paul says we're living temples. But do you know in Revelation, that's how we're pictured? 
Here's the verse. And it's a bit of a Rubik's Cube mystery. Um, here's what I'm going to show you here. In Revelation, John is invited. And he says, one of the seven angels said, come. And he said to me, I will show, the bri- show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The bride, the wife of the lamb. We just read Ephesians. Who's the bride, the wife of the lamb? Us. So John's expecting to see a woman, the people of God. And says, and he showed me a city. Not only a city, but a Rubik's Cube. What the heck? How do I figure out the puzzle of what this means? Well, the puzzle of what that means is that this new Jerusalem is shaped like a cube. It's 1,500 miles high, wide, and long. In the center is the throne of God and the Lamb. And guess what? We are the new Jerusalem. We're not going to go live there. That's who we will be. That's a symbol of for who we are. This cube, anybody know in the Old Testament, what is a cube? What's in the shape of a cube? Related to the temple. Louder? Holy of holies. The tabernacle was 10 cubits by 10 cubits, and Solomon's temple was 20 by 20. It's a cube. This cubic New Jerusalem says to anybody familiar with the Old Testament, the bride of Christ is no longer in the Garden of Eden at the end of time. They've become the Garden of Eden. We can never, ever be cast out of God's presence in this new covenant, this marriage covenant. Marriage is until death do us part. We never die. God never dies. Yeehaw! We are together as one. But practically what that means, I would suggest, and we can't get into it, my course on Revelation, I get into it, and the book I just had published on Revelation, I explain it, but I suggest that it's not only who we're going to become, but it's actually who we already are. The church, the bride of Christ, already we are invisibly, we are the new Jerusalem. And when Christ comes back, we will be visibly revealed for who we've already been. Because we are indwelt by the God of this universe. We are to be the presence of God. So whatever you do in this life, Make sure you are intentionally trying to embody the presence of the Lord wherever you are. As churches, if we're so focused on programs and outreach and everything else, on doing, 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 but we're not centered on being the presence of God and letting God be present through us, we've missed the boat. We're not living into who we already are. So I invite you, fall in love with our Jesus more and more. Become this bride, this blushing bride that just wants to gush everywhere she goes with the beauty of who Jesus is. And people go, wow, I want that kind of relationship. And I'm so encouraged here at Prairie that that's your heartbeat and your passion. Uh, I want to bless you in that and pray the Lord just powerfully works through you all and equips you to transform this world because you are the presence of Christ You are the new Jerusalem and you're so glittery and shiny people just want to come and take a look. Let's pray. Father, we come um, not because of anything we've done. 
we're in a journey. We have no idea what's going on. We're confused. Life doesn't make sense, just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. What goes on? Our, our, our hope, our help, our everything is dead. And people are telling us that Jesus has been resurrected, but I don't know, can we believe that or not? And then Jesus, you show up. Lord, when we're in our confusion, when, we're in our, the, when life is a mystery, when we're not sure where, where this path is going, or how we're going to get to where we think we should be getting, Jesus, would you show up? In your own inimitable, beautiful, hidden, silent, quiet, but very clear in very inviting ways. And will we be the same in people's lives around us? Just sidling up to them and allowing you to live out through us and give people a hunger for a marriage relationship with you, this new covenant that's available to anybody irrespective of ethnicity, of culture, of anything, just because we're human and you've loved us from the beginning and you'll redeem us at the end. In Jesus, your name, amen.